As we begin today, uh, I, I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 13. That's where we're going to be. Recently, uh, Elon Musk and his space, SpaceX program launched the first private uh, space flight for, uh, that, that we've been seeing. We're, we're so excited to see the space exploration uh, continue. But whether you're talking about SpaceX or a model rocket in the backyard, every rocket has a launch pad. There's a starting place. There's a place from which it takes off to go where it's going. We're going to be looking at, at that idea today. If you have ever wished for a more confident faith life, this is for you. If you've ever struggled with your faith, and wondered, why can't I just be bolder? Why can't I keep this going? Why can't I keep that momentum rolling? If you've ever felt like others walk more confidently and powerfully with Christ than you do, this is for you. That's a pretty common problem. And today we're going to look at it as we continue our Impact World Series in Acts chapter 13. If you haven't turned there already, make sure you do so now. We're going to start with verse 1. Actually, we're going to start with, verse, with chapter 12, verse 25. It's sort of a, a transition verse from the story we looked at last week to what we're seeing this week. So starting with Acts chapter 12, verse 25, I'll read through uh, verse 12 of chapter 13. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been uh, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that was what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you, and you are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. 
when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we open your word today, we recognize that you have much to say to us. That you have given us your word specifically so that we can know you more. So that we can see you and hear your voice. Even, as it were, touch your face. To find an intimacy with you. Lord, this is why you have revealed yourself in Scripture to us. We, in this moment, Father, choose to honor you. To glorify you. To lift up your name. To ascribe the glory and honor due your name. Bless our study today, Lord, that we might not only learn information, but that we might be changed, transformed from within by the renewing of our minds. Make us more fully yours today. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, apparently I'm a terrible husband. At least according to the articles and things that I see telling me what I'm supposed to give my wife as a gift for Christmas or birthdays and Valentine's Day and all these different things. I see these gifts that, that people recommend and I, I find it laughable. You should never, tell me if you've heard this one, you should never give your wife cooking utensils as a gift. You should never give your wife a vacuum cleaner as a gift, or garden tools as a gift. Never give a woman a practical gift. Unless, of course, your woman happens to love practical gifts and hates frivolity. If I were to show up for my wife with a gift that cost a bunch of money and was pretty and shiny, she would look at me and say, what is wrong with you? Don't you know I could have used that money to buy a new pot, a new shovel, even to pay a bill. You see, I know my wife. The people writing these articles, no offense, Stacy, have no idea about my wife. They don't know her. I do. I know her intimately. How do I know her intimately? I have spent more than three decades dedicated to daily getting to know her better, to seek her, to pursue her, to understand her. Now, gentlemen, understand, the mind and soul of a woman is a lot like the universe. It's like space exploration. You will never get to the end of it. There is always more, but I'm going to tell you I'm going to enjoy. Baby, I'm going to enjoy exploring for the rest of my life. This is what we're seeing actually in Acts chapter 13. It is a passion for an intimacy with God to know Him. To have intimacy in this relationship. An intimate, detailed, deep knowledge of what God wants and who He is. I know what my wife wants because I know who she is. 
I know how she thinks. I know her heartbeat. Do I do it perfectly? <laughs> yeah, right. Just as in my walk with Christ. I don't do that perfectly either. Just like Paul, I don't pretend that I've attained it. But I'm going to throw away what is behind. The mistakes that I made, where I blew it. Man, that was a dumb gift. Shouldn't have done that one. Where I got selfish and forgot about putting her first. I'm going to press on from that. We can't live there in the past. I have to move forward because tomorrow I want to know her better than I do today. And 20 years from now, I want to know her better than I ever imagined. If we love Christ, then just like these folks in Antioch, we need to be hungering after Him. Desperately seeking the Savior. And as we pursue Him and we gain knowledge, it grows us. It puts down deep roots. And if you've ever tried to push over a tree, you know that doesn't work very well. Because the roots hold it in place. Heck, if you've ever tried to pull a dandelion out of your garden, it doesn't work very well, does it? Because there are roots there, deep, deep roots. Some weeds come out easy. Not ones with deep roots. We want to get deep roots as well. We want to be able to live this confident life that we see here. Now as we walk through this, there's a, a core reality, a governing principle, a big idea that we're going to see throughout this story. It's not a big story. It's not a long story. But it's a heavy, weighty, important story. Not only for the progress of the church, it's huge in the history of the church and it's spread in the book of Acts. It's a beautiful picture of the power of the Holy Spirit in individual lives as well as in the corporate life of the body. It's a beautiful picture of the power of the Holy Spirit through those individual and corporate responses to God to reach out to unbelievers and snatch them from hell and save them. Despite all of the enemy's opposition. But we can't get there if we miss the big picture. And the application becomes powerful for us. Here it is. The more intimately we know Christ, the more powerfully we show Christ. Now that doesn't seem overly complicated, does it? It's amazing how many things in life that are powerfully true are not deeply complicated. The more intimately we know Christ, the more powerfully we show Christ. That's what's happening here. As we walk through this, we're going to see some different things. And uh, we won't have... Uh, slides today. We've had a computer difficulty this morning that has kind of messed us up. So uh, Brad has found some technological workarounds to get us some partial things. So I'm going to work hard to try to make sure I tell you when I'm hitting something you're going to want to put down on your programs. Uh, I apologize to those of you at home. I know that the program outline was posted earlier. So hopefully you've had that and printed it and been able to follow along. But as we look at this story, we're going to see a few things. First, we notice unity in diversity. We're going to see unity in diversity. Now notice what happens after uh, Barnabas and Saul, they finished their mission. Their job was to take the collection back to Jerusalem to give it to the leaders to distribute to the poor. For a famine that hasn't yet happened, 
but the disciples are so moved by the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives that they want to take care of those who have a need that they haven't even felt yet. So they, they go, and while they're there, you may remember from last time that, uh, that we see this uh, contrast between Peter's humility and Herod's pride, and, and Herod, wanting the accolades of the people, arrests Peter, plans for a public trial so that he can make a big spectacle of this. He's already put James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, to death by the sword. And now an angel shows up and delivers Peter. Peter is pretty much a non-factor. He's a passive player in this. God, God does all of it. He sends an angel and delivers him. Herod, on the other hand, is pretty active. He's got his hand hard at work, seeking to persecute the church, eliminate the church. And at a particular point, he has a big speech with the people of Tyre and Sidon and Caesarea. And they praise him as if he were a god. Now, if you're familiar with Roman culture, uh, Roman history, that became a big thing among the emperors. The Caesars were worshipped as deity, or as a form of deity. Well, Herod received that praise for himself. He was happy to be called the voice of God. God wasn't so happy. And he struck him down. Not only did he strike him down, he humiliated him by having him eaten by worms until dead. Not a good way to go. You think COVID-19 is something. Man, you should be paying attention. Worms worse. So as this now transitions to the new story, Barnabas and Saul, whether this is chronologically tied to it and they came after these events, I think that it was, or whether they, uh, it's a separate transition coming back to this, they have now returned to Antioch, where they took the collection. They didn't take it, they received it. And then passed it on to the leaders. And now that they're back here, Luke records for us something about this uh, church at Antioch. He says in verse 1, and this is where we see this unity and diversity. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. They have, uh, in this new church in a Gentile city, they have a prominence, an abundance of prophets and teachers, those who speak the word of God through whom God speaks, and those who teach, give instruction and doctrine. And he lists them. Now notice the diversity of this group. Barnabas, who we were introduced to back in Acts chapter 4, who uh, at least uh, coming into this, was a Jewish landowner. He's a Jewish believer. He owned land, we know, because he sold some of it to give to the church. Now, besides Barnabas, we see Simeon, called Niger. Simeon is a, 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 uh, uh, would indicate that he was of a Jewish background, whether he was from uh, the Jewish lands or from somewhere else, unclear. But the name Simeon shows us that he has a Jewish background. And yet also the name Niger, which not surprisingly means black, indicates that this is a dark-skinned man. Perhaps from Africa, perhaps not. But you're basically talking about a brown person, a black person, since they call him that. He's Simeon the Black. So you see diversity of skin color and ethnicity in the very beginnings of the church here at Antioch. Not only that, we see this black Jewish man we see Barnabas, 
a, a uh, seemingly somewhat wealthy landowner. Then we see Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius is a Roman name. Perhaps he's a Roman citizen, as we'll later find out that Paul is. But he's from Cyrene, which is the capital of Libya. So we have another African man coming into this. There's great diversity. Menaean, now this is an interesting one. Menaean was raised with, brought up with, grew up around. Some would debate whether that means that, that he was uh, in the same household or, or whether he was a friend or how he was connected exactly. But Menaean appears to have been in, in basically a foster brother sort of relationship with Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas. Not the Herod that just died in chapter 12, but the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. The Herod who presided over the trial, the unjust sham trial of Jesus, and sent him back to Pilate. This guy, a leader in the church, either a prophet or a teacher, some, some strong... A leader present at Antioch grew up with, was buds with, bosom friends, if you will, at, to whatever extent, with Herod as they were growing up. Now he's leading the church. And then there's Saul. Saul doesn't get a lot of mention here. But he's going to get the rest of the book to get developed. Saul, we've seen already as the persecutor. He was the up-and-coming Pharisee. Now he's become nothing in his mind. All of his education, all of his, uh, his reputation, all of that earthly power gone. He doesn't care about any of that. He cares about Christ. The persecutor became the persecuted. And now he's here leading the church. Some have speculated that these may be, I believe the NIV Study Bible points this out as well, that these may be listed even in order of prominence. That Barnabas, having been sent by the leaders down to Antioch, had this prominent position as the, the, uh, the lead pastor, so to speak. And Saul bringing up the rear among them as the least prominent. I don't know whether that's true, but there seems to be scholarship that might support that. If that's true, what a turnaround we'll see as Saul becomes increasingly prominent. We see this from God very often. What I think is most important about that particular observation is that if they're listed in order of importance, if you will, prominence, position, none of them care because that all goes away. Here we see them referred to as Barnabas and Saul very soon, we'll stop seeing that and it will become Paul and Barnabas. Position doesn't matter in the church. We belong to Christ and we all stand on equal footing before the cross. Unity in diversity. Notice this, many backgrounds, one purpose. If you're filling in your blanks, you want many backgrounds, one purpose. These guys all came from different places. They have a lot of things that they do not share in common. You've got to know they're having different worldviews they're bringing in. You've got, you've got rich and poor alike. You've got Jew and Gentile. You even have white and black together in this same group casting aside all of their earthly things that divide them. Their politics, if you will. Their class 
their ethnicity. It doesn't matter. We are one in Christ, and that's all that matters. They're united in purpose, as we see, because they are gathered here in Antioch to do work, to represent Christ. We're only in verse 1. In verse 2, we see that while they were worshiping with the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, verse 3, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Check this out. Not only do we see unity and diversity, but we see private preparation. The leaders gathered together, perhaps the church gathered with them. They are worshiping and fasting. Verse 2, while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Write this down. They were hungry for intimacy with God. They were hungry for intimacy with God. How do I know that? Well, for one thing, that's the nature of the activity, specifically with the fasting. Now, in these two things, we're told that they're worshiping and fasting, and then we're told that they're fasting and praying. Only one of those verbs is repeated. We so often neglect to talk, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, neglect to talk about fasting. We don't deal with fasting very often. That seems weird. It seems like that's something that, that those extremists do, or those cultists do, or those New Agers do, or so, who, some other group that isn't you. Why would I do that? I'm just drawing attention to myself. Listen, what we know about fasting from Scripture is that it happens a lot. And God is pleased. But God is not pleased when the fast becomes the end rather than the means. In other words, when the point of the fast is the fast, when the point of the fast is what I'm gaining from it, rather than seeking God, God is displeased. When the fast is for the purpose of letting everyone else know how spiritual I am, God is displeased. Fasting is giving something up to be able to receive more of God. There are lots of different ways of fasting. All of it involves a certain abstinence. James McDonald uh, referred to it along the lines of it's choosing to abstain for a time, abstain from food, abstain from physical desires, to be able to abstain so that I can feast on God. I'm going to make myself physically hungry so that I can feast on God. Tony Evans talks about fasting quite a bit. And when, he, when I first started hearing him talk about it, I'm like, dude, you are so over the top on this fasting thing. I want to become physically hungry to enable myself to be spiritually satisfied. It is a reminder, an opportunity for me to to abstain from something that I naturally want, to be able to pursue, to seek after desperately the thing that I want most, that supernatural food in the person of God. Fasting is important. It's part of this preparation. Now, worshiping is ascribing value to God. I'm recognizing Him for who He is. I'm acknowledging the greatness of Him. I'm focusing on that character. If I'm worshiping and I'm fasting so that I'm building up this conscious hunger, 
by the way, I think this is one of the downsides of our casual society. And we're not changing what we're doing here at the church. But I just want you to think about something. If I'm here at church, and this is the worst thing. If you're watching online, you know you're struggling probably right now because I had a really hard time with this watching online when we were recording. And I'm sitting there watching the recording, and I'm eating my pancakes because my wife got to make some pancakes when we, were, when we were doing this. And I'm sitting in my recliner. It's really, really hard to be in a mindset of worship before God. When it's a common place, it doesn't feel like a holy place. When I come into the sanctuary and I'm snacking and I'm sucking on my coffee and all that, I'm not telling you that that's inherently disrespectful, but it does do something in us to make it more casual when it should be more transcendent. We've worked really hard to make worship, to make church informal and comfortable. Man, i got to tell you, the whole nature of worship should be the most uncomfortable thing in the world. You're coming before a holy God. If you're comfortable, you don't get it. I say this as one who is far too often comfortable before God. Because I too don't get it. There's unity and diversity. Private preparation is a key here. We see them hungry for intimacy with God. We also see a joyful response. Now notice, after they hear from the Holy Spirit, they're worshiping, they're fasting, they're hungering for Him. They receive a word from God. The Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. Whoa, did you guys feel that? Did you guys, did you feel the Holy Spirit talking? I think he's telling us that we're supposed to send Saul and Barnabas out. Saul and Barnabas were like, I think God's telling us we need to go. But you know what they don't do? They don't immediately just jump out. Now they're joyful, they're eager, they want to go and, and do what the Holy Spirit tells, tells them to do, but they do something first. You know what they do? They fast some more, and they pray. What are they praying about? Well, the context would indicate to us that they're praying for confirmation. Lord, we think this is what you're telling us. Is this really what you're telling us? I mean, we, we got these two prominent teachers. We, Barnabas is our leader. We got to have him. Saul, you know, he's, he's brought so much wisdom, so much knowledge to us that we never even thought of yet, and, and you're telling us we need to send him out? Lord, Show us, tell us, confirm for us that this is right. Write this down. Eager obedience, not rash reaction. Eager obedience, not rash reaction. It's not a knee-jerk kind of thing. I get, you know, stirred by the emotion of a song and a worship service. So God must be calling me to the mission field. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go. Now, wait a minute. He might be. Or he might not be. You might just be stirred up. Now, there's nothing wrong with being stirred up. There is something wrong with reacting rashly rather than obeying eagerly. Take the time to listen to God. Pray. Ensure that what you think you're hearing is what God is actually saying. Really good way to, to do that in your life? Check the Word. 
If you think you're having a vision from God, if you think you're getting an impression from God telling you to do something that is not contrary or is not in keeping with his word, it ain't God. It's the liar, the father of lies, who often poses as an angel of light and makes it sound real good. Oh, I I feel like God's leading me to get out of my marriage. I feel like God is leading me to, you know, I need to take a little bit of money from the till here so that I can give to the church. Yeah, that's it. I want to give to the church. Come on now. Or the worst of all, well, I know God wants me to be happy, so he must be telling me whatever it is that follows. I'm sure that this person that I love must be honest with with God. So God must have made them for this particular lifestyle. Therefore, it can't be wrong. The Bible must be wrong. Guys, the devil lies to us all the time. Don't be fooled. Pay attention. Unity and diversity, private preparation, joyful response. We see, lastly, bold faith and powerful witness. When they respond by eager obedience, they pray, they confirm it, and then they send. There's no real hesitation here. They're not hesitant to do what God tells them to do as soon as they know and confirm that God told them to do it. So Saul and Barnabas, they pray with them. They receive from the church this benediction, right? We confirm that God is telling us, and we're praying together. Listen, guys, we want to bless your ministry. As you leave us here in Antioch to go do this mission, we want you to know that your church has your back. We stand with you. We're not going to grip onto you so you stay with us. We don't regret you obeying God. We are eager for that. And Saul, Paul, and Barnabas, they go forward knowing confidently that they're doing what God wants them to do. And we see what happens when they get to Cyprus. We see what happens when Saul speaks with Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. He's called an intelligent man for a reason. They don't say that about every leader. There's something about this man, whether he's a a known seeker of wisdom or whether he's particularly sharp, uh, has a high IQ, maybe he's really extra educated. In any case, Luke is pointing out that this guy stands out as an intelligent man. And he sends for Paul and Barnabas. He's heard what they've been doing. He's heard what they've been teaching. And he wants to know more. It would have been really easy for them to say, Oh my goodness, this is an important guy. You know they don't do that. We serve the only important guy. So this is a great platform for them. They go and they're bold about it. And they run into his attendant. Elymas Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus is son of Joshua. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. So this Elymas Bar-Jesus, his name means sorcerer, or magician, or trickster in the, in the Greek. And this guy is an advisor, an attendant with the proconsul. 
And he does not want Paulus to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he uses all of his wherewithal, all of his wily tricks to keep him from it, to speak against Saul and Barnabas and the gospel, to turn his mind from the truth. And Saul does not hesitate for a moment to call him out. Sometimes the cancer of falsehood grows because we are unwilling to do the brutal surgery to remove it. This is why church discipline is important. It's often neglected. It's been often abused over the centuries. It's so important for us to recognize that we must, as the body of Christ, stand and defend the truth, the gospel, the faith once entrusted. This is our job, to guard the true doctrine, to guard the faith and practice handed down by the apostles. So in the church, as believers, as members of the body of Christ and of local churches, this only happens effectively in the local church, but we're all members of one body, we must hold one another accountable. If you are buying into false teachings, you start following a prominent uh, pastor, teacher, author, speaker, singer, whatever, who is putting out false things, standing against the truth of the gospel, and your brothers and sisters know about it, we must call you out on it. And you have to call me out on it. We stand together for truth. And that's what he does. He says, listen, there is a truth. This guy ain't it. You are a child of the devil. Kind of strong words, right? Just a little? That takes a boldness. you got to know that you're right. you got to know that you're standing with God, and Saul does. He says, you devil, you get out of here. We're done. And he's so confident that he's doing God's work here that he says, in front of the proconsul, people around, because of your lies, because you're trying to cover the eyes of those who seek truth, you're going to be struck blind for a while. Maybe you'll learn. Now that's stepping out on a limb, isn't it? I can pray for somebody to be healed. It's another thing to say, you are healed. Jesus Christ heals you. That's a boldness. I can tell you, hey, you know what? I think you're wrong. I think you need to rethink this. It's another thing to say, You are against God, and God is against you, and as of right now, God will strike you blind. That's going out on a limb. You only do that when you are confident. Write this down. Intimacy, here in this group, intimacy produced confident faith and strong action. Intimacy, specifically intimacy with God, intimacy with Christ through the Holy Spirit, Intimacy produced confident faith and strong action. They believed. They knew it. It wasn't, well, I believe, you know, like we kind of have our our weak little 
simpering Christian faith. Yeah, I, well, I believe that God is, you know, God is love and Jesus died for my sins. And it's all about grace and not about works. But, you know, I don't want to offend you with it or anything like that. That is not a confident faith. The faith of the Christian says, there is one truth, this is it, thus saith the Lord. The scripture is the standard, there is nothing else. Yes, Christianity is exclusive. Because there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we stand with this truth claim. It's not a religion, it is very much a truth claim. We are saying there is only one truth. You better know it before you say it. It takes confidence to become bold and to have strong action. And because of that confident faith that came from the intimacy of the relationship, the Holy Spirit does something, moves with power, and when Sergius Paulus sees that when he witnesses that power, he's already amazed at the teaching. Don't miss that. So at the end of that, uh, at that verse, verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He'd already heard the gospel. That's what Dr. Know-it-all, as the message uh, renders it, was trying to turn him away from because he heard the message. Now having seen it, he receives the message as the Holy Spirit moves through Paul. The confident faith and strong action come from the intimate knowledge of who God is and what God wants. Let's move forward. Let's talk about how we can deal with this. How do we apply this for ourselves? The more intimately we know Christ, the more powerfully we show Christ. We see it here in chapter 13 in the early church as they send these guys out from Antioch. They go to Cyprus. They have this this powerful mission, this important conversion, not because Paulus is more important than any other person. Humans are humans. But because this is another turning point in the growth of the church. Notice this. We grow in intimacy Not just intimacy with one another, not a a vague notion of intimacy, but a deep connection with Christ. An intimate knowledge, a vulnerability that lays us open before Him where we are willing to receive whatever He has, to take God as He is, to see Jesus in reality, not Jesus in religion. Not how He's been presented, but how He actually is. We grow in intimacy with Christ when we first recognize Him in worship. When we recognize Him in worship. That's what they're doing here. And Turn to Revelation chapter 4. This is a picture of what will be going on for eternity in heaven. We see a glimpse of it in what these leaders are doing together in, uh, in Antioch. This is why we love getting together, because this is what we are to do. Revelation chapter 4, John receives in his vision a picture of of a throne in heaven at verse 1 of chapter 4. 
in the book of Revelation. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an, emer- like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the thrones were 24 other thrones. Seated on there were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now it starts to get good. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. We won't take time to to look at those creatures right now. But what they're doing is what we want to see. Verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, read it with me if you would. Let's read this together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What are they doing? They are worshiping. How are they worshiping? They are recognizing who God is. They are acknowledging God for who He is. He is the one who who was and is and is to come. He is the one who is thrice holy. The full nature of God captured in His otherness. Holy, 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 almighty past, present, and future. But it's not over yet. Verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things. And by Your will they were created and have their being. We grow in intimacy with Christ when we recognize Him in worship. Worship focuses on the person, nature, and work of God. Not only that, we grow in intimacy with Christ when we hunger for Him in fasting. When we hunger for Him in fasting. I have to tell you, just a little true confession here. I had a really hard time putting this in the outline. I really, okay, I'm just a a guy here. I really wanted to leave it out in my flesh. Fasting's hard. And it's weird. I don't want to put something hard and weird in my program for me to stand here and tell you about. But truth is truth. And when it's in the Word, we got to talk about it. Why does fasting matter? Now, some of you are familiar with intermittent fasting. You've done different types of, of things that are fast-like. Perhaps you've, over the years, maybe when you were growing up, celebrating Lent in the church background you were from, maybe you abstained from meat during that period of time, but you never really knew why. If you're fasting and you don't know why, that's not what we're talking about here. 
If you're fasting to lose weight or get healthy, that's not what we're talking about here. Now, that may be a benefit, but that's not the point. It can't be the point. If you're fasting in a hunger strike to free the people of India, that is not what we're talking about here. This is specifically hungering for God. Deliberately choosing to hold back something that could satisfy my flesh so that I can pursue something that will satisfy my soul. Turn to the book of Psalms, verse 42, or chapter 42, I'm sorry. Right in the middle of the Bible, you're going to find the book of Psalms. I want you to see it, because I know everybody here has, has heard these words before. But we want to see it actually in the book. Psalm 42, verse 1 and following, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. There's a picture here as the sons of Korah write this prayer and sing this prayer. There's a desperation, like a deer about to die dies, craving water. That's how we come to God. Some of you throughout this pandemic have been feeling that way. When can I get back to church? But if all we're doing is having a social club at church, it's not gaining us anything. When we have this craving to get back to church, to fellowship with the believers, to join together with those who are like-minded, united in our purpose, united in our identity, because we have one Savior, and we died with Him, and we've been raised to a new life, and now we're one family forever, then our hungering for meeting is not just so we can hang out with friends. When can I go and meet with God who manifests Himself in the praises of His people? In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. There is a filling that comes from Christ, from the Holy Spirit in us as we passionately, desperately pursue Him. Now, I don't know if you get it. I don't know if you're hearing me right. I feel like Ron Swanson. I don't know if you, I don't know if you understand me. You think I said, bring me a lot of eggs and bacon. I said, bring me all of your eggs and bacon. I'm not talking about going through the motions of fasting and praying. You have to get to those motions at some point. But if you're going to seek God, you will not find Him until you seek Him with all your heart. 
understanding that he's the initiator of that seeking anyway. But listen, if you are in the desert, I, I watch a lot of Westerns. Anybody watch Westerns? Okay. Steve McQueen, Wanted Dead or Alive, good stuff, I'm loving it. Google it if you're too young to know what that is. And a lot of times in these westerns, they get caught out in the desert. They're on this big trip, and they run out of water, or somebody, some bad guy shoots them in the canteen. Not a good thing. And all the water drains out. Days later, they are about to die. And they no longer care about whatever it was that they cared about before. They care about one thing. I must have water now. They can bring in the most beautiful woman, the biggest steak, have the, the biggest party. It doesn't matter. The bad guy they were chasing after doesn't matter. i got to have water. And I won't give up until I find it. That's what we're talking about. With hunger, hungering after God through fasting. Making it difficult and uncomfortable for myself so that I can pursue Him with a clear mind. We grow in intimacy with Christ when we pursue Him in prayer. When we pursue Him in prayer. If anyone seeks wisdom, James says, you should ask God. A little later, James says, you, you, have, you don't have what you want because you don't ask for it. And when you ask for it, you ask with wrong motives. We need to pursue God in prayer, not just God's goods. Your mother and father, when you were a child, longed to give you good things. But if you just focused on the good things, you broke their heart. What they wanted more than anything else was that bond between you. That intimacy. That you would be happy, but that you would be happy in the relationship. Does God want you to be happy? Yeah. But what He really wants is for you to be His to be holy, to be happy in Jesus. As we pursue God in prayer, we do as these brothers did. We want to know Him, we seek Him in this fasting. The prayer goes hand in hand with that. Fasting by itself is nothing. Prayer goes with it. I Take away from my natural satisfaction to find spiritual satisfaction in Him. And I seek Him. I pursue Him. I chase after Him like that deer. i got to have Jesus. Lord, I just want to know You. I want to get away in the secret place where nobody else is around. Nobody's impressed by my words. It doesn't matter. i just got to have You. We grow in intimacy with, with God, intimacy with Christ, when we pursue Him in prayer. We also grow in intimacy with Christ when we hear from Him in His Word. When we hear from Him in His Word. Notice what happens in chapter 13 as they worship and fast and fast and pray. God shows up. And God speaks. They receive a word from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit tells them, here's what I want from you. Now primarily, now, 
They're still writing the scripture at this time. Primarily now, God speaks to us through his word. Does the Holy Spirit still actively operate in the world? Yes, of course. Does the Holy Spirit still speak to us? Yes, but I would be very, very tentative about any type of experience that I want to attribute to the Holy Spirit that isn't rooted in, deeply grounded in the Word of God. This is how God speaks to us. This is how the Holy Spirit does His work. How do we know this? Well, for one thing, what did Paul say was the sword that the Spirit wields? In Ephesians 6, it's the Word of the God, or the Word of the Gospel. When we have the Word of God, we are giving the Holy Spirit communication tools, if you will. He wants to speak to us. And for those of you who have been around the faith a long time, and you have experienced at some point this desperation in seeking God, and then you've fasted and earnestly prayed and wanted to hear from God, and you felt like you really did, there's a really good chance, I, I don't know your experience, but I would bet that as he spoke to you, he spoke through verses that we would have had memorized that were in your heart. He spoke to you through the devotion that you were doing as you were studying his word. And if you thought you heard God tell you something that contradicts his word, you did not hear God. You heard a liar posing as God. This is why he wrote it down for us. We grow in intimacy with Christ when we hear from him in his word. Now, I can't hear from him in his word if I don't spend time studying it. I got to tell you, that's one of the biggest challenges for me. Always has been. But one of the biggest challenges for me as a pastor is to spend personal time with God, just him and me, not in preparation for a sermon, which is part of it. When I'm preaching a sermon, every time I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me as well. My old, old Mississippi pastor friend, Pastor Garrett, used to say, if I, every time I point a finger at you, I got three more pointing back at me. Every sermon is for the preacher. But I have a hard time. I have to force myself to get alone with God, to read the Word just for the sake of knowing Him. To spend time in prayer just because I love my daddy and I want to talk to him. It's important for us to get to that place. Lastly, we, we grow in intimacy with Christ when we recognize him in worship, when we hunger for him in fasting, when we pursue him in prayer, when we hear from him in his word. But don't miss out on this really important point. We grow in intimacy with Christ when we submit to Him through His church. When we submit to Him through His church. The speaking that the Holy Spirit does here is not to an individual. It's to the body. He speaks to and through the leadership of the church. Now, before we start getting off, there, there is no comparison between any human authority and the authority of God through His Word. But God has established the church. Christ has given us, has built us into His called out ones, His living stones that He's using to build His temple. 
And we cannot submit to Christ if we don't submit to the church. I want to let that sink in. I want to talk real slow if I can, because I want to make sure all this gets into our heads and into our hearts. Ephesians 5.21 says to the church, to Christ followers, to submit to one another, not just to the leaders, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have to, if we're going to demonstrate our submission to Christ, demonstrate it through His body, the church. That means we have to belong to one another. We have to belong to the church. This is why church membership matters. That's why it matters. Church membership isn't something you earn or work up to or you, you know, you're locked into this contract. There's a covenant choice to say, I belong to the body of Christ. I belong to Jesus, therefore I belong to you, and you belong to me, and we're in this together, through thick or thin, to the very end. That's what church membership is about. Because as long as love and submission and all of these nice-sounding theological things are just theories, and we don't practice it with flesh and blood people, Christ isn't pleased. Virtually every part of the New Testament is written to, for, and about the church. We act like sometimes it's optional. I can have Jesus, I just don't need to have the church. Or I, can, I can show up for church and not, not really commit in membership. You can't. There's no place in the Scripture where we see that picture. There's always a belongingness. Submit to Him through His church. Just as a reference point, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, we see this picture of Christ giving His church teachers, pastors, evangelists for the building up of one another so that, that we would build up the church so that we grow into maturity together and as we grow into maturity together and we become sound and solid in our doctrine and the faith, then we also become more sound and intimate in our knowledge of Christ. It happens through the church. One last point to fill in as we close this out. Our intimacy with Christ determines our walk with Christ. Our intimacy with Christ determines our walk with Christ. You might notice a confident faith begins on our knees. Do you want to be confident? Do you want to be bold as a believer? Develop your intimacy with Christ. Because that is what determines how you walk with Him. How you live with Him. Strong trees have deep roots. The more intimately we know Christ, the more powerfully we show Christ. To serve Christ boldly, we must seek Him earnestly. Not passively, not casually. Earnestly. I like the word desperately. That picture of a deer panting for water. 
that desperation of a starving person just finding any morsel to get a hold of. Our Western hero struggling to survive in a dry and dusty place. That's the earnestness we need if we're going to seek Him. The power of our witness for Christ springs from the intimacy of our relationship with Christ. Our public witness springs from our private preparation. Understand that the witness people see is the result of the preparation they don't see. I'm going to say that again because I stumbled a little bit and I don't want you to miss it. The witness people see is the result of the preparation they don't see. In other words, this is important for me as a pastor. What flows from the pulpit springs from the closet. Whatever power there can be in preaching has to be developed in the preparation of prayer and study. I have to not just be studying the Word as a textbook. I've got to be walking with Him. I've got to spend time on my knees in the closet. Not literally. It gets hot in there. But where nobody else sees, in the secret place, where no one else matters, it doesn't matter if anybody ever knows what I'm studying today, or here's what I'm praying today, my Father knows. What flows from the pulpit springs from the closet. More generally speaking for all of us, what we develop in private, we display in public. People will see what they don't see when we do in private what builds us up in intimacy with Christ. They won't see that work. Just like when you watch a professional sports contest on television, when you see the White Sox who are tied for first place, Mike, that's a good thing, right? When you see these ball players do great things, you see that highlight, you see that game. What you don't see is the hours and days and weeks and months and years of work and grind and sweat and tedium and boredom and just annoying little learning things that goes into getting to that one moment. The same thing is true in our walk. The people don't see the preparation you put in in private, but they absolutely see the result. When you go home today, look at the trees around you. You may see their leaves and their branches, but you don't see the root. If the root isn't there, the fruit will never be there. Just a parting thought. They reflect Christ most powerfully who know Him most intimately. They stand best who kneel most. Let's pray. Father God, You alone are worthy of our praise. Teach us, Father, that if we want to live with power, if we want to have a faith that is strong and bold and confident, that we must know You. We must worship You with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We must place You above everything else and be diligent 
diligent in our desperate situation, seeking to know the life giver. Father, help us to find your strength as we seek your face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.